0: This morning, we're in Second Kings, and, um, you know, and just to, to go back a little bit, um, it, it kind of dovetails with our passage, but also with our vision statement. Uh, our vision statement is about promoting the kingdom of God and making it visible throughout the greater Cincinnati area. And I want to just say, you know, yesterday, um, with Sam Peterson's uh, memorial service, that was a good example of the church promoting the kingdom of God and making it visible. It took a lot of uh, volunteers, uh, both staff and, and lay volunteers, to, to pull that service off. And just so grateful for the, from the greeters and those uh, working with the bulletins and preparing the, the, the sanctuary and, and our staff involved and those who were uh, the small army of people working with the luncheon and and so, just so grateful. Um, this is promoting the kingdom of God, making it visible. And so, um, very grateful. Um, if I haven't said it in a while, best church ever. <laughs> but let's stay humble. <laughs> keep praying for God's grace and empowerment, and keep looking for ways to serve the people to serve the city around us. It makes a difference. Well, I'm I'm happy to be working through Second Kings and, and, this, and the narratives focusing on the great prophet Elisha. Over and over again, we'll see that the kingdom of God is being made visible in a nation, the northern kingdom specifically, a nation given to idolatry and that has cultivated a culture of death. In chapter 4 of 2 Kings, this begins the section of miracles um, centering on the prophet Elisha. And, and so we'll see Elisha in the power of God, delivers fellow Israelites from debt, from drought, disease, even death. And this morning we begin with Elisha's ministry to a widow in need. Would you stand for the reading and the hearing of the word of God? And I'll be reading 2 Kings 4, 1 through 7. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went, she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. Hallelujah. Let's pray. (laughs) Oh God, you are our God. Earnestly we seek you. Our hearts thirst for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. According to your great kindness, would you grant us ears to hear, eyes to see the truths that we need to see and that we need to appreciate, all for the great name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Our narrative, um, in, in some ways, uh, where I'm going with it is, is just to see something about God, to see something about his concern, particularly for the most vulnerable among us, in this case, uh, a widow and, and her fatherless children, but also to see something that is true about Elisha in the way he points forward to the ministry of Jesus. Okay? So that's where we're going, to learn something about God, to learn something about uh, who he is, about his care for the most uh, vulnerable, and then to talk about what this shows us about the ministry of Jesus. Our, our narrative introduces us to a widow facing desperate circumstances. Now, we, we have to back up a little bit before diving right into the text. This is all, these stories are taking place within the northern kingdom of Israel. And the northern kingdom, since the beginning of its establishment with King Jeroboam, um, has been given to kind of idolatrous worship, beginning with King Jeroboam setting up these uh, golden calf idols as part of their worship, both in the northern uh, uh, region of Israel and in the south in a little town called Bethel. And part of this was to secure uh, the political establishment by keeping the northerners, the northern Israelites, from going to Jerusalem to worship at uh, the temple. So this was uh, largely a, about political expedience. But following King Jeroboam matters became worse. And and particularly with the, the rise of King Amri, who is the grandfather to the particular king we're, we're at now, Jehoram, um, so you have Amri, who begins to establish, uh, increasing pagan worship. It kind of explodes in the, the reign of his son Ahab and his wife Jezebel, where the entire, um, uh, establishment, the government apparatus, the king, uh, the, the king and queen themselves not only, uh, promote the worship of Baal, but now they've become antichrist. Now they are also actively persecuting and trying to kill off the true prophets of God. So this becomes a a very desperate situation during the reign of Ahab and Jezebel, and it's within that reign uh, uh, that arises uh, the great prophet Elijah. Then we come to Jehoram, um, and, and it's during his reign that we now have um, elijah 's protege the, uh, the the one prophet that Elijah is handing the baton to, elisha, so Elijah is first, and then you know Eli and then elisha okay so it 's sometimes tricky to keep straight, but elisha is now the prophet that we are focusing on uh, in these narratives. The result though of the idolatry of the northern kingdom, um, this idolatry promotes this culture of death. And so part of uh, what what we are to understand um, is that there's a close connection between the worship of dead idols and a culture that promotes death. Now, the the Northerners would not have said, oh, we're all about death and dying um, and all that goes with it. No, not at all. Um, But it's what the, the scriptures teach us, that there is a way that seems right to a man, that seems right to a person, but its end is the way of death. You see, idolatry is, it's, it's not saying, oh, worship dead idols and you'll become deaf and blind and mute, spiritually speaking. It never, it's never promoted this way. They've got good marketers, good salespeople, you know, who, who are marketing the, the idols as something that's exciting, something that's, that's, um, that's full of drama and life. But there is a way that seems right to a man. But its end is the way of death. Their commitment to dead idols has created a culture of death, a culture that impacts the daily lives of its citizens. Even uh, the land is impacted by the North's rejection of the living God in favor of idols. No longer is the North a land of milk and honey, but it is a land of scarcity. It's a land of poison. And uh, from kings, we see uh, that a culture of death is also a culture of idolatry. So there's a connection here. And this brings us to a woman who is experiencing a double tragedy, a double crisis. We're introduced to this unnamed woman who is a wife to one of the few faithful prophets left in the northern kingdom. You, you may recall earlier during the reign of King Ahab, uh, when uh, Ahab and his wife are trying to kill the true prophets of God, that one of the king's servants, um, one of his officials, a high official by the name of Obadiah, actually risks his life to protect a hundred of these prophets. So there's, there's always a remnant. And within the northern kingdom, there was a faithful, a faithful community who maintained their worship of the Lord. In fact, God tells Ahab that there are at least 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. Okay, 7,000. And perhaps this prophet was among the 100 that had been preserved by this high official, Obadiah. We don't know. One detail, however, is worth our notice. Uh, Like the woman in this story, her husband also goes unnamed. And other than being counted among the the prophets, the only other thing that we know about this man is in verse 1. Your servant, the widow says, my husband is dead. And you know that your servant, and here it is, this is the only detail we have concerning her husband, your um, uh, your servant feared the Lord, and it strikes me that if there's one thing that we would want, you know, written as an epitaph, if there's one quality that at the end of life that we want people say, I don't know anything about this person, but the one thing I can say is this person had a reverential; they revered the Lord. This was a godly uh, a man, a godly woman. This is a man or a woman who walked with Christ, not perfect by any stretch, but they loved God, and that was reflected in the way they lived. You know, it's just a reminder to us. You know, in this just this one little note of description, how powerful and important and significant that one note is. A reminder, and should encourage us to be pursuing. Godliness in our own lives. Now, each and every day, we should be fighting the fight of faith to be who God wants us to be, to be genuine in our love and in our desire to serve God and follow Christ. So this first crisis is that the woman is a widow. And the second crisis uh, is that she is in debt. She's about to be forced to sell her children into debt slavery to pay off her creditor. Okay, so according to the law of Moses, um, the children, you know, in order to pay off a creditor, it was permitted um, to sell children as slaves. Now, it it wasn't a permanent situation; Uh, it would end either with the debt being paid. So that would be one way to end uh, the 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 slavery, the debt slavery, is what it was referred to. or after six years. So there was a maximum of six years uh, involved in this. So every, what they called every Sabbath year, um, these kinds of uh, debt slaves would be released. And they would be released without, you know, even if they still had a debt, the debt would at that point be forgiven. In any case, um, this woman is in a very difficult situation. And uh, here we see again this kind of culture of death at work surely you would think someone, given her circumstances, the loss that she has endured, someone would take pity. Someone with some means, with resources, would have compassion and would um, seek uh, to, to come alongside and to deliver her from this situation. Um, and in fact, this is in part what kings were supposed to do. Kings were supposed to watch over their people, to provide for their needs, to protect them, um, especially if these were kind of unscrupulous uh, individuals that are seeing an opportunity uh, to attack someone who is quite vulnerable. But there is no one. And you know, we can only imagine the profound test to this woman's faith in God. I mean, you can almost hear it, you can feel some of this emotion in her voice. You know, she's, she's, it, it says she cries to the prophet, not, you know, she just merely goes or petitions the prophet. She cries uh, to the prophet. And she's, she's kind of, the way she explains her situation is she reminds the prophet, it's like, you know, that my husband served you. In all the days of hostility and persecution, he stood strong he bought you know uh, the system he stood up to the king and queen he went against the the the, the harsh winds of of persecution and of the the stream uh, that the culture was moving in and now he's taken away and not only is he taken away but now i'm destitute and my children my sons are about to be you know sold into debt slavery I did everything right. You know, you can almost hear this. Why is this happening to me? Why is there no one to help? Where's God? And you feel this. And this is, you know, God in his province. He works in mysterious and hidden ways. And this brings this woman to see her need, to, to present her, her, her claim to uh, the prophet of God. And again, it's not just this prophet, but this has been a recurring lament, a recurring cry of God's people through all generations. Now, part of what we are to see in this narrative is that, in fact, even when painful life-altering circumstances come into our lives, that God cares, that God has compassion, that we must not lose faith, and we should also notice that he has a special concern for the most vulnerable among us, in this case for widows and the fatherless. From verse two to the end of the narrative, the story, you know, is, is pretty uh, sparse of details. It's a, a brief um, explanation of what takes place. Elisha asked the woman, you know, just kind of a practical question. Okay, let's work the situation. <laughs> what do you got? And, and part of this, I think, is designed to help the reader understand this woman has essentially nothing. She says, I have, you know, what do you have in your house? So, you know, maybe there's some things, you know, something you've got in the attic, something you're not even aware of that might have some value that could help you, you know. Um, and she just says, I've got nothing except this little jar of oil. I've just, I just have one jar of oil. That would be olive oil that was uh, very important for for cooking and, and for the the economy of that time. Um, so she's just got this this one jar of oil. And what that's meant to tell us is no, she she does <laughs> Elijah, if you thought there was some, you know, natural or human way out of this, no. Forget that. There's nothing that she has that's going to deliver her from her destitution, from her debt and from the loss of her kids into debt slavery. That's that's part of the point here. And so but Elijah, I'm sorry, Elisha, sees an opportunity. And so he simply tells her, okay, go to your neighbors, get the empty jars. Not a few. That, that's like, get as many as are available. And then, interestingly, he says, take them into your kitchen or into your house. You know? and, and what's interesting about this is he tells her to shut the doors. You know. This is, this is a miracle that's going to take place just among a very handful of people, uh, a mom and, and her kids. And uh, it's going to be out of the, the public's eye. But in that, that you know, behind the, those uh, closed doors, the Lord is going to supply, he's going to miraculously, divinely fill each of these jars. And, and, and so we read that at the end of that last jar being filled, what happens? The jar runs out. And that's just a point that this was not just some, you know, chance um, uh, way, you know, something bizarre, but not divine, you know, solve this woman's problem. No, this was God at work in fulfilling and supplying her needs. Okay. So miraculously, God creates um, this oil um, and and supplies all of her needs so that she can take it. And Elisha is not present at this point, um, but then she later talks to him and he says, okay, now go and take the, the oil, sell, pay off your debt. And then there should be even oil and money left over that you can live on. Okay. So God mightily supplies the needs of this woman, and and there are a couple of things that I I want to highlight, and and first is that from the society's perspective, the destitute widow, these two sons, you know, in terms of the culture, the surrounding culture, they probably didn't matter a whole lot. Okay, they they were not high on the rung of status or in the rung of society. But one of the things that we just need to be reminded of is that we serve a God who has a special concern for the widows, for the poor, for the, 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 those who are the most vulnerable within society, for the fatherless, for orphans. We see this. This is a theme that does, It's not new with Jesus. It's not new with James. Um, but we see this all, right away in the Old Testament, in the law of Moses. Every three years, uh, the Israelites were to give an additional 10% of their their, uh, income, and this 10% went to the care of the poor, to the care of those who through just life in a fallen world had fallen on hard times. And in addition to this, you recall, this was true, and and we we just talked about Ruth not long ago, um, and and about how Ruth went into the fields of Boaz, and and she was able to glean this marvelous amount of grain. Well, this wasn't by chance. Well, I mean, she was, okay, so there's some help for Ruth. But but in general, part of the law of Moses was that the farmers were not to uh, harvest their fields to the very edge. In fact, they, and, and, and if it fell to the ground, they were to leave it. They were to allow the edges to be left unharvested so that the poor and the destitute could come and work, you know, using their own labor could, could receive uh, grain and food uh, just, for, um, just to survive. This was part and parcel of the law of Moses. And then Proverbs says this, the, the wisdom writer, do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless for their redeemer is strong. Speaking of God, he will plead their cause against you. God is making it absolutely clear that he has special regard for the, for the poor and for the vulnerable. And because this is of high value for God to show compassion for the poor needy, we as believers, as followers of Jesus, to maintain the same value, we're called to maintain that same value through our own compassion and our own generosity. James, I referenced earlier, James one twenty seven. religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. One of the ways that the early church practiced this value was, you know, um, I don't know how many lists they had, but one of the lists they had was for widows that had no family. So family is always the first line of defense. And it continues to be the first line of defense when someone finds themselves in some kind of economic or or some other kind of hardship or trouble. But when that widow doesn't have family present to be able to to provide that support, then the church was to step in. And the early churches had a list of widows, okay, and probably included, you know, just this would those who were afflicted, those who were the most vulnerable, but to make sure because this is what God is like, that these individuals do not slip through the cracks, that their needs, we, and, and you know, it's just interesting to me that the Bible recognizes that not every situation in life is equal. It recognizes that there are individuals, you know, like orphans and widows and, and the destitute, whose situation is actually worth recognizing as having a, difficulties and challenges and hardships that need to be appreciated. And so we as a church want to also practice this. I was really encouraged just in December, I learned about um, how uh, a plea came from, um, we support India Gospel League and, and we support pastors in these little local villages uh, uh, who are just, a lot of times they're, they're not um, formally trained, but, but they have a heart for the Lord. They're being trained uh, informally in the scriptures and how to, to lead and, and they're planting churches. Well, in the last year and a half, COVID really hit India hard. And there were a number of pastors who were killed, uh, who died uh, from COVID um, over the last year and a half, and, uh, or last couple of years. And so the plea went out, can you help and just provide uh, finances and money to help support these widows of, of pastors who have died? And I'm so happy that our missions committee, they solved that plea and they're like, yes. Let's figure out how to, you know, take some monies that we have and get this money to these widows. That's consistent with who God is. That's promoting the kingdom of God. It's making God's kingdom visible. The values of the kingdom, the love of the kingdom, the grace of the kingdom. And many of those values are countercultural to the world around us. And All right, so as the culture becomes more secularized, the easier it is <laughs> for us to be made visible, because there's a greater contrast. But also before, um, but not only do we see God's concern for the widows, the second thing here is, is that in contrast to the culture of death that leads, in this case, to the bondage of debt slavery, this is a God who loves to redeem. This is a story of redemption. It's not just simply a story of provision, but the provision itself is redeeming these children out of slavery. And this just goes right to the heart of who God is. Going back to the Exodus, what is it that God so desired for his people that they would be freed from the bondage of Pharaoh, freed from the slavery of Egypt? This is right at the heart, redemption. Redemption in physical cases like these sons that were about to be sold um, and redemption spiritually from the bondage of sin and the bondage of Satan. This is what Christ um, uh, has come, and this is what Elisha, in part, is modeling for us. Now, there's something that the woman does have to do, though. And here she's a model for us. She has to have faith. It's not enough to be desperate. She has to go to God's man. She has to go to the prophet, to Elisha, for whom she cries out for help. And then she has to take the risk, because this is a very strange requirement, not just today, but in those days too. You know, she's thinking, oh, what are my neighbors going to think if they find out I'm just this crazy, desperate woman? What are my children going to think about God when I do this? And And then nothing happens. She has to have faith to move ahead with the prophet's plan. And not only does she have to have faith, she has to have a particular kind of faith. She has to have faith that, in fact, the God of Israel is not like the idols of the northern kingdom. Um, The idolatry of the northern kingdom promoted a mentality of scarcity. And indeed, the land was experiencing scarcity. But what we're supposed to learn, in part, from this, is that we as believers, we don't need to have this mentality of scarcity. We do need to be good stewards. We need to work hard, but we also need to know that, you know, if somehow our work f- fails, our employ, you know, our employment comes to an end, we get sick. God has lots of other ways to supply the needs of His people. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, as somebody has said, or the psalmist. Think about. You know, God is just lavishly extravagant in some ways. I I think about the creation of the sun. If a bunch of, you know, American engineers got together and wanted to create a power source like the sun that would, that would generate power for a single, you know, for a planet, what would they do? They're going to be like, how do we like focus, you know, the power of the sun? We don't want to waste that power, right? We don't want to be wasteful. We we want to somehow direct that power so that we can conserve it and use it for its best purposes. And so somehow we've got to get it to move with the the orbit of the earth. Not God. He just creates this amazing star. Most of the energy is just going out into deep space and just completely wasted. And we are the beneficiaries of this lavish, inexhaustible God. That's something the woman had to believe that the the God she actually serves has inexhaustible resources. And this is especially important as we kind of like are getting a little nervous about our own economy. (laughs) Our faith is not in the economy, our faith is in a God who has inexhaustible resources. And that's in part what we're to learn about who God is. Biblical economics is not the same as the world's economics of scarcity. Now, before coming to the end, I do want to introduce this idea that God is using these narratives about the prophet Elisha to do more than just amaze us with Old Testament miracles. He's also using Elisha to teach us something about the coming Messiah, Jesus. Elisha's ministry is a type of of the kind of ministry. So this is my kind of thesis. The ministry of Elisha helps us understand the ministry of Jesus intentionally so. Okay, so it's going to take a little bit of explanation. Let's, first of all, compare Elisha's ministry with his predecessor, Elijah. Elijah. In general, Elijah is considered the, you know, many people, when they think about the prophets of, of the Old Testament, they, they, they know more about Elijah than they do about Elisha. Elijah was the prophet of thunder. Okay. He's the prophet who calls down a drought. And then by his prayers, the, the drought, you know, comes to an end. Water is, is, is provided for the entire nation. He's the prophet who calls out the hundreds of prophets of Baal and says, okay, we're going to meet at the O.K. Carmel. And we are going to, and we're going to have, you know, this is going to be a duel to the death. And we're going to see whose God is the true God by calling down fire from heaven. Okay, this is, this is um, a, a prophet who became the most, want, you know, he was on the, the you know, Northern Kingdom's, FBI's most wanted list. Okay? He was enemy number one, and, and to the point where he has to flee for his life and get out of Dodge. Uh, he, has to, to, he flees to the wilderness and then to, uh, to Sinai, uh, where he has this kind of experience of the theophany of God appearing to him, kind of like Moses on Mount Sinai. When we think of Elijah, we think of like this dramatic, public uh, figure, he's all about kind of these demonstrations of great power. What you are going to see with Elisha is what's already modeled in this narrative. One, he's going to, first of all, he's going to operate largely in the land of the northern kingdom. Elijah operates mostly outside of the land, in the wilderness, in different places. But Elisha's ministry is going to be with a community, a community of prophets, a community, this remnant, within the northern kingdom and many of his miracles most of his miracles are these kind of like just small miracles with a small group of people um in this case a widow and her sons um and it's interesting that that, that there's this emphasis make sure that you shut the door this is you know literally a miracle that takes place kind of in the privacy of this woman's kitchen In the pantry, maybe. You know, this is, it takes place literally behind closed doors. This is not Elijah style ministry. Now, it's also important to say this whereas many look at Elijah as being the greater prophet, in terms of the flow of 2 Kings, in fact, there are twice as many miracles that are ascribed to Elisha than to Elijah. Elijah, within the structure of 1 and 2 Kings, is given one section. They call it one chapter. Uh, the whole uh, uh Kings, first and second Kings combined, has seven different sections, seven different chapters, and two of those sections are given to the ministry of Elisha. And it turns out that in terms of these displays of great power, Elijah himself was discouraged that they didn't bear more fruit. Consider on Mount Carmel, where you know, he shows conclusively who the true God is. You would think that, that the nation, it would, would just lead to this massive national revival. But no, yeah, nah, baby, nah. Um, the queen wants his head. And so, I mean, Elisha flees for his life, and he enters, he falls into this depression because it doesn't go the way he thinks it's going to go. And, and that's another truism. People are not generally, there are exceptions, but in general, um, uh, there are two things. Number one, people are not converted by displays of power. They're able to rationalize them because our hearts are hard. The problem isn't a lack of knowledge. The problem is the problem of our sinful hearts. It's a moral problem, not an, an educational issue. And we think it's education if we can just, you know, if God would just do the handwriting on the wall trick that everybody would see it and believe. No, over and over again, we see that these works of power often even harden the hearts. They want the prophet dead, dead. That's what they want. What Elisha shows us is a different kind of ministry It's a ministry with individuals. It's a ministry often on the fringes. It's a a ministry where the miracles are done with a small group of people. They're not public. It's not dramatic. He's not uh, in dramatic confrontations with the the rulers. And through his ministry, this community is nourished. This community is fed. This community is filled with life. Okay. Now, let's let's translate this to the New Testament. We know that John the Baptist comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. John the Baptist has, you know, um, if you think of Elijah, he's all about, you know, uh, the wind and the earthquakes and the fire. Well, Elisha is more like the still small voice. (laughs) And John the Baptist is like Elijah. He looks like Elijah. He's, he dresses like Elijah. Most of his ministry is done in a wilderness like Elijah. He's confronting the king of his day and put into prison as a result of his dramatic public, you know, rebuking of the king of, uh, of Israel at that time. Um, he, John the Baptist was a well-known figure. And he, the, the powerful, knew about John. Jesus arrives on the scene with a very different kind of ministry. He's working much more quietly. He's not going after the kings. He's not challenging them. And by and large, Jesus is also not doing these dramatic public displays of of miracles. He's not calling fire down from heaven. In fact, when the disciples, they go into a town, they reject the message of Jesus. And James and John... What do they want? To do? They want Jesus. It's time to go all Elijah on this town. Let's call down fire. And Jesus rebukes his disciples. That's not the the style of ministry that Jesus was going to conduct. If John the Baptist is in the spirit of Elijah, this is also confirmed by the words of Jesus himself. Jesus's ministry following John's is like Elisha following you know, the thunderous Elijah. And so as we move, what we see is that Elisha provides us with this picture that generally speaking, the way God operates in the age of of the church, in the age of Christ, is not through displays of great power. It's through, as he says to his disciples, just giving cups of cold water to the thirsty. Jesus's ministries are about healing paralytics and the blind, and he he heals the leper. A woman who has this issue of blood, he heals her. He's about healing a demoniac, you know, away from the the crowds, uh, you know, in the wilderness on the eastern side of of the Sea of Galilee. Many of Jesus' miracles are like Elisha. And this is a paradigm for us. And now Jesus is going to take this this kind of ministry one step further because he's also going to show us that the ministry of the church is also a ministry of the cross. It's a humble ministry. It's often a ministry in this dispensation of humility and suffering. And that this is the means that God is going to use an Elisha-like ministry, a cross-like ministry, to promote and make visible his kingdom, in a way that truly makes a difference. And this should encourage us to look for those small opportunities to bless and love the people around us. Well, let's pray. Our God and our Father, Lord, I love your word. I love the way it ties together. I love the way the Old Testament is not just relegated to Sunday school stories, but it continues to be deeply relevant for our lives, you know, 3,000 years later. And we're grateful, Lord, for the way that you continue to open our eyes to the the person, the character, and the ministry of Jesus. And we pray that our lives and our ministry as a church would be be modeled on the ministry of, of Christ. We seek your help. We seek the power of your Holy Spirit, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.